coming to you straight from the street. This is the Dish Doc EM Podcast, bringing you emergency medical education for paramedics, nurses, and EMTs. Here's your host, Owen Wood. Hey guys, what's going on? Owen here with episode two of the Dish Doc EM Podcast. It's starting to get warmer outside, and I thought that this would be a really good time to talk about heat injuries. Now, heat injuries are a whole spectrum of different problems that somebody could have, ranging from heat rash, which is also known as prickly heat, to heat syncope, heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and worst of all, heat stroke. I'm going to spend most of this time talking about heat stroke and heat exhaustion, because these are the two more dangerous things that you can face. So heat exhaustion is usually a not life-threatening condition, but it has the potential to become one if it's not managed in time. Someone with heat exhaustion has been in the heat for quite some time, but their body is still able to thermoregulate and cool itself down. The key clinical features of heat exhaustion are going to include a core body temperature which is usually less than 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit and a normal mental status. So these patients are going to be pretty hot, but they're going to be able to answer your questions and just generally be exhausted. Other signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion are going to include malaise, weakness, dizziness, headache, nausea, diaphoresis, and tachycardia. Treatment for a patient with heat exhaustion is usually going to involve removing them from the hot environment that they're in and possibly some active cooling measures, which we'll talk about later. Now heat stroke on the other hand can be fatal and is usually broken into two different categories. The first being exertional heat stroke and the second being classic heat stroke, which is also known as non-exertional heat stroke. Classic heat stroke usually affects the extremes of age, so you could expect that you would see this in the elderly and small children or infants. Usually, classic heat stroke develops over several days, and risk factors include heat waves, lack of air conditioning, poor fluid intake or poor access to fluids, and children left in vehicles. Exertional heat stroke primarily affects athletes, military personnel, and people who aren't acclimatized to local conditions. Now here in North Carolina, our weather is kind of weird, so I don't know that anyone is actually acclimatized to conditions here. With exertional heat stroke, the onset of symptoms is pretty quick, usually over hours, and risk factors include poor fluid intake, exercise during extreme weather, and American football. The key clinical features of heat stroke are a core body temperature of greater than 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit and an altered mental status. Usually this is the defining factor between heat stroke and heat exhaustion. Other signs and symptoms include tachycardia, hypotension, tachypnea, coma, and flaccid limbs. Now, the skin in these patients may be dry or it may be sweating. I was once taught that when somebody had heat stroke, they would stop sweating and their skin would be dry. 
This is not always true, so don't wait for somebody to stop sweating as an indicator that they have heat stroke. If you check out the show notes at ditch.gm.com, I've dropped a short video from Ted Ed about heat stroke, how it works, and a little bit about the management. As a pre-hospital provider, one of the most important things you can do when assessing a patient you suspect has heat stroke is obtain an accurate history. Now, like I just mentioned, someone who has heat stroke is going to have an altered mental status. So getting a history from them can be pretty difficult. You're going to want to utilize bystanders, family members, anybody who can tell you a little bit about what happened to this patient prior to their symptoms. Some of the specific history that you want to obtain is their activity prior to symptoms, their hydration status, length of exposure, treatments and first aid that were initiated prior to your arrival, prescription medications they might be taking, such as tricyclic antidepressants, phenothiazines, anticholinergics, and salicylates. You also want to ask about other drugs, such as alcohol, cocaine, or amphetamines, as these can also contribute. While you're obtaining this history, you're going to want to keep a few differential diagnoses in the back of your mind. Some differentials for heat stroke include neuroleptic malignant syndrome, malignant hyperthermia, anticholinergic toxicity, sepsis, and thyroid storm. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome and malignant hyperthermia can be treated with dantrolene, and you'll probably hear something in the patient's history to tip you off to one of these conditions. If not, muscle rigidity is going to be a good indicator of that, as patients experiencing heat stroke are typically going to have flaccid muscles. If you suspect anticholinergic toxicity, take a look at the patient's pupils. Someone with heat stroke is probably going to have normal or small pinpoint pupils. If anticholinergic toxicity is the culprit here, you could expect that you're going to see very dilated pupils. Sepsis and thyroid storm are things that you'll probably need to pick up in the patient's history. So how do we manage a patient suffering from heat stroke? Well, as usual, we're going to assess airway, breathing, and circulation first. And then we want to remove that patient from the hot environment. We're certainly not doing the patient any good if we're taking vital signs and gathering a history while the patient is laying in the beating sun. While you're assessing this patient's vital signs, you want to make sure that you get a rectal temperature. I know, it's nobody's favorite, but it's the most accurate way to determine core body temperature, as an axillary temperature or oral temperature can be misleading in these patients. Once you've determined that you are in fact dealing with a case of heat stroke, you're going to want to remove the patient's clothing and begin active cooling measures. Now there are a lot of ways that you can cool a patient down, but the most effective way is with cold ice water immersion. In order to cool a patient with cold ice water immersion, fill up a bathtub or a kiddie pool or any other kind of container that you can find with a bunch of ice and a bunch of water and place the patient inside. It's recommended that while the patient is in the ice water, you kind of churn the water around so that it kind of dissipates heat away from their body and continues to cool them as fast as possible. Now this is the preferred method, but it's not always practical. I really don't know of many EMS services that carry a kiddie pool or bathtub, much less enough ice water to fill it up on their trucks. 
so you may have to go with another method. It's very, very important to note that if cold ice water immersion is available at the scene, you need to cool the patient down prior to transporting them to the hospital. These patients can survive and have a good neurologic outcome if they're cooled down in time. If cold ice water immersion is not a possibility for you though, the next best thing that you can do is start evaporative cooling. Evaporative cooling can be conducted with a spray bottle full of water and some sort of way to fan the patient. These could be the air conditioning vents in your truck or a person with something to actually fan the patient with. With the patient's clothes removed, you're simply going to mist them with the spray bottle of water while your fanning device or fanning assistant fans them off, evaporating the water and cooling their skin down. Another method you could use, but is really not preferred, is strategic ice packing. And what you're gonna do with strategic ice packing is take some ice packs and you're gonna pack them around the patient's armpits, neck, and groin near the large vessels. This will cool them down, but also runs the risk of giving the patient a cold injury due to the contact of the ice packs. Once you've begun active cooling measures, you're gonna to wanna to cool the patient down until their temperature drops below 39 degrees Celsius or 102 degrees Fahrenheit. If you continue to cool past this point, you run the risk of actually giving the patient hypothermia. Some of the complications of heat stroke include hypoglycemia, seizures, cardiac arrhythmias, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Therefore, it's important to maintain continuous cardiac monitoring while you're treating and transporting these patients. You're also gonna to wanna to obtain IV access for fluid resuscitation, which is usually conducted with normal saline. If during active cooling, the patient begins to seize or have intense shivering, a benzodiazepine can be used to manage this. It's also important to mention that antipyretic medications such as acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and aspirin should not be used in these patients. These medications will not help lower this patient's temperature and can in fact make their condition worse. So let's sum this up with some key take-home points. The first being, heat stroke is a deadly but survivable condition if it's managed appropriately. Second key point, ice water immersion is the best way to cool these patients down. If you have it available, use it. But if you don't, use another method immediately because cooling them down is priority number one. Which brings me into point number three, cool the patient before you move them. If you have a good means to cool them down on scene, such as ice water immersion, use that first before transporting them. And remember, you're gonna reduce their temperature down below 102 degrees Fahrenheit prior to initiating transport. Fourth key point, obtain a detailed history and consider all the differentials for this patient. And finally, prevention is the best way to manage heat injuries. By providing just a little bit of education to the public, we might be able to prevent a lot of these cases every year. Well, that about wraps it up for episode two of the podcast. I really want to thank you for listening. And please take a moment to rate the show in iTunes. Every single rating really helps. 
Don't forget to head over to ditchdocem.com to check out the show notes and that TED-Ed video that I put there for you. And don't forget to tune in for next week's show, which I've got a really good episode for you guys on electrical injuries. Be safe out there. The content of the Ditch.EM podcast is based on evidence, fact, and the recommendations of credible sources. Always refer to the protocols and guidelines established by your institution. The views expressed are those of Owen Wood and Ditch.EM in their entirety.